Take a walk along the canal this autumn with one of our museum historians. Our new canal walks explore the history and operation of the Welland Canals and include a visit to the new Fallen Workers Memorial. Hearing the stories of those men that died building one of Canada's greatest engineering achievements is impressive and moving. Everyone should come and take a walk with us. Canal walks run during our Open Late program, Tuesdays in September and October 2nd at 6.30 p.m. Wear comfortable walking shoes and meet in the museum lobby. Walking tours are available to all by donation. Welcome to One Hour in the Past, a new podcast series presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center and hosted by me, Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator, and Kathleen Powell, Curator and Supervisor of Historical Services. Before we get into today's podcast, we would like to acknowledge that we are recording today's podcast at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center, which we acknowledge is part of the traditional territory of the Neutrals, Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples and their allies and is adjacent to the Six Nations of the Grand River. As museum professionals, our jobs are many-fold. Managers, curators, interpreters, researchers, and much, much more. We found ourselves pining for some more interesting and perhaps wild history in our daily work. So here's how the podcast works. We select a topic Then we each go away and have our one hour to research the topic with the end goal to see how far down the rabbit hole of research we can go. So, here we go. Are you ready to head down the rabbit hole and see where one hour in the past has taken us? Let's go! But first, another commercial about some of our upcoming programs. There's so many. Remember the old YMCA, YWCA on Queen Street? What about the days at the Market Square before a permanent building was built? Memorable signage and buildings from our city's past are now on display at the museum. People and Places explores some of the people and places that have disappeared from the city's landscape. The exhibit has been open for a few weeks now, and we've already heard so many wonderful stories about the objects in the exhibit. It's great to see how people remember different places and experiences in different ways. I just love watching people light up when they see so many things from our city's past. One gentleman even told me about how he had met his wife at the old YMCA, YWCA, and seeing the sign on display brought back so many wonderful memories. Visit People in Places, a new exhibition here at the St. Catharines Museum, on display through March 20th, 2019. Let's jump down the rabbit hole and see where our research on the arts and crafts movement has taken us. Just to remind everyone, Adrian and I have each taken one hour to research a topic. This week, our topic is the arts and crafts movement. Independently of each other, we've done this research, and this is the first time that we're talking about it. I just love starting every episode with a definition of the thing that we're looking at. And I think it's a good benchmark. However, this week, we can't really do 
go or go with a Google definition of the arts and crafts movement because it's it's so broad and expansive. We won't get you know a dictionary definition out of it. So I'm going to provide a bit of ex an explanation of what we're talking about rather than a definition like we usually do. So the term arts and crafts refers to the early 19th century British and American movement to revive the handicrafts. English reformer William Morris was one of the founders of the arts and crafts movement in the late 1800s. Tired of excessive Victorian architecture and the machine-driven industrial age, Morris <laughs> and his followers wanted to return to a pre-industrial handmade society. Morris also wanted to make custom furnishings available to the common man. When the movement made its way to the United States at the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, Gustav Stickley, founder and editor of The Craftsman magazine and a well-known furniture maker, became the American leader. Originally, the term craftsman meant a home built from a plan in Stickley's magazine, but it has come to mean homes built in the arts and crafts style. The arts and crafts style and craftsmen's craftsmen are both acceptable in Canada. You'll hear, hear the term used interchangeably. So there are some key elements that I think we should review as a part of this style, especially architectural style. So usually they're built of natural materials. Craftsman homes are typically built of real wood, stone, and brick. Uh, they often have built-in furniture and light fixtures. Built-ins were the hallmark of uh, the arts and crafts era. Built-in cabinets allowed the furnishings, furnishings to be part of the architecture, ensuring design unity and economic use of space. Even the light fixtures are often a part of the design. Fireplaces were the symbol of family in the arts and craft movement, so most homes feature a dominant fireplace in the living room and a large exterior chimney. Most homes in the craftsman style have porches with thick square or round columns and stone porch supports. One of the things about, that I've noticed about the arts and crafts style movement is that the porch is sometimes, the porch sort of awning and all that stuff is sometimes bigger than the house. Right. It's so massive. There is there a house back there beyond the porch? So porches are for sure important. Um, Low-pitched roofs are also important. The homes typically have a low roof with wide eaves and triangular brackets. The beams on the porch uh, and inside the house are often exposed, and then an open floor plan as well. The arts and crafts movement rejected the small boxy rooms like those in Victorian houses. There's a few famous examples in the world. Uh, the most, probably the most famous is the Gamble House. Uh, this 8,200 square foot arts and crafts icon is in Pasadena, California. It was built in 1908 by Charles and Henry Green, who obsessively crafted every detail of the furnishings and art. It's been in a bunch of movies, so people right. might, if you look it up. And, That's why it's famous. Yeah, and if you look it up in the, the footnotes to this episode or just on Google, you might recognize it from a few different films. So, should we get into where our research, now there's sort of a good understanding of the architecture, should we get into where our research took us? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Who goes first? I think I go first. You can go first, sure, that'd be awesome. So, I ended up in a couple of different places. Uh, the first one that I wanted to do was try and identify some arts and crafts buildings that are local to St. Catharines, um, but we'll talk about the complication with that and how many different... Uh, edits and, and, and shifts the arts and crafts movement has had uh, in the last 
100 years since it started. Uh, and then, or 110 years, I should be accurate. Um, but also just kind of seeing what kind of influence, uh, seeing where the influence came from, and then I think more importantly, where what influence it had on other styles. So I actually ended up, unsurprisingly, looking at Frank Lloyd Wright and Prairie School style architecture um, from the Midwest because I think the parallels are so similar, but the design styles are completely different. Right. So like the 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 belief system, I guess, behind the architecture and the design are like almost the same, but the style is completely yeah. different. So that's kind of cool. So that's where I ended up. But I'll start at the beginning. So I looked at sort of the idea of the arts and crafts movement as a rejection of the Industrial Revolution and... Uh, um, machine-made things, uh, furniture and that kind of stuff, uh, the assembly line and mass-produced materials for homes, um, and sort of that, that the rejection of that. For a couple of different reasons, they it seems like they rejected that. They thought that there's a, it's a, a moral implication to assembly line and the, the drudging down of the worker was a, a detriment to society, even though the assembly line the assembly line made more material available to more people for a lower cost. Um, then the other piece is that they were tired of Victorian architecture and probably what I imagined to be for architects at the time, the staunch rules of you can't do this, you can't do that. Everything has to have a gable or gingerbreading or something like that, um, or be in a particular style. And if you look at the homes of some of the, the, the first arts and crafts people, um, they had they were strange and they don't fit a victorian mold even though they're built sure. in the you know 1850s 60s 70s and 80s so um kind of neat so th i think the 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 one of the biggest um identifying features of the arts and crafts movement is sort of the medieval look cuz they're usually dark stone with lots of natural materials and wood so it has more of that medieval feeling than, or like, a, um, you know, a, a Tudor feeling as well than a neoclassical or Baroque or Greek revival where everything's white and bright and high ceiling and all that kind of stuff. So Yeah, because they had some sort of, I found that they, I found a, um, a reference that uh, basically they had this idea that going back to the, the uh, the Middle Ages before the Renaissance, when all things were great, that there was a much uh, better um, moral. It was a better moral time period, and um, things were more green and handmade. And so I found the and same. And beautiful and yeah. clean, and because people had a specific relationship with the stuff that they were doing, yeah. rather than stuff coming from a factory. And, yeah. and the factory like ruin everybody's lives right? they thought it was a, I, the website that I found said that it was a, a more idyllic time period of piety and high moral standards um, as well as healthy and green although I don't know if a, a <laughs> the, historian the... of the uh, the gothic era of the middle ages would say uh, idyllic 
with a period of piety and high moral standards and necessarily, like, but cleanliness. <laughs> Clearly, they forgot about the plague. Like major piece of history yeah, there that they for forgot sure. about. Whoops, the daisies. We'll just but write that out. I think the interesting thing about that is this idea that they tied the moral health of the country. Mm-hmm. To its architecture and yeah. its art and how art was done. Yeah, I love that. So those 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 two things stuck out for sure. So it's an, a, a style inspired by the departure from and reaction to Victorian traditions, styles, rules, and concepts. But that it's a movement that people have to buy into or do. You know, not just as somewhere to live your life, but you actually pick this style or build this house because it supports a particular way of life. And how many people actually do? that kind of thinking about where they're going to live today, right? Like, uh, especially suburban development is has nothing to do with your lifestyle. It's more just a place to have an existence and then you kind of decide what, what your life is um, rather than like this, like this house is supposed to be what kind of yeah. moral life you're living, you know, and, ins- yeah. and inspire you that way. And interestingly, the original arts, you probably have this in your research, but the original <laughs> arts and crafts movement was basically a movement that rich people who had country houses used to build their country house in an entire movement. So you were able to build the house, have all the interior match the the movement, as well as the entire landscaping of the exterior. So that's not really changing the common man so much. Not at it's, all. It was originally designed for that. Totally different how it happened in Canada, but the, yeah. in England where this was... Uh, started that was it was basically rich country houses that started the arts you can imagine the (laughs) this sounds terrible (laughs) but you can imagine the frustration of wealthy landowners whose mansions have been slowly built for 300 400 (laughs) 800 years and then they finally have the money and the opportunity and then an architect who wants to do it to completely revolutionize their entire place right so their house and the gardens and and you know so that's, I think that's really kind of interesting. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, those, you know, different styles put together yeah. are like, you know, revolutionized. So there's a couple of important people that I just want to mention. So John Ruskin was uh, an artist. William Morris was uh, an artist who worked with textiles and, and materials as well. He's probably the most famous, most famous. arts and crafts yeah. architect slash artist. For sure. It's not really His an house is called the Red House. And it's one of those ones that I was <laughs> mentioning earlier it's a good example of this does not fit the 1860s when it was built like it's like not it doesn't belong so i can't imagine like good like can't imagine what he would have felt like living in that house like probably awesome but what does his neighbors think about his <laughs> oh, house oh no the value of our home has gone down now because this red house is <laughs> yeah that's here. right yeah it's a beautiful red yeah. house it just doesn't look like a victorian structure it looks like a medieval structure with victorian materials really yeah. so it's it's neat side note of trivia related to the red mm. house is that it's actually the very first arts and craft building to be built no way that's cool i didn't realize that yeah, it was built in 1859 whatever it's fine it's all the same don't tell anyone okay so <laughs> that includes you audience don't tell anyone um so the other another one was a little bit earlier than these guys these artists uh, and architects was um is it is it is it Pug- pugin or Puggin. I don't know. I thought it might be Pugin. Pugin. I don't know. Let's go with Pugin. I like that. I like that. Okay. 
<laughs> I guess we gotta look that up. Um, yeah, I'll probably edit this out. Uh, just kidding. No, I'll leave it in. I don't know. Anyway, so Pugin was that we've decided Pugin now uh, was an interior architect uh, on the Palace of Westminster under Charles Barry, and uh, that is a, a really good. If you've been there or seen pictures inside, heavy wood, oak paneling oak tables, wooden chairs, all that kind of stuff. Um, heavy, heavy, dark, dark. I'm just repeating words now, but... Um, but not, like, super polished. It no, had, like, this look rustic of... rustic feel, yeah, but, exactly. like... exactly. Like, you could see the uh, the axe marks on the yeah, wood, you know, that yeah, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 um, Definitely, kind of. Um, but also not, and not, like, a perfect... It's not perfect, you know? Yeah. Like, a, a Westminster Hall, where... Um, is one of the huge spaces at, at the Palace of Westminster, which is the British Parliament today. Um, that's a really good example of some early, early arts and crafts style that was adopted into the movement. So he was an architect. That And the Westminster um, par- Houses of Parliament in England were uh, in the 1830s, but the, his style was really ad- adopted, that oak paneling for sure. Yeah, he um, was one of the early... Early guys, yeah. Early um, the founders of the movement. Yeah. And he has the my favorite name of all of the people I've come I came across in my research. His full name oh, is yeah. Augustus Welby Northmore Pugin Pugin, whatever we've decided it is. So that's a pretty it's just awesome name. It's, it's a pretty awesome name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the Society for Arts and Crafts is uh, another little thing that I just want to cover because they had like a, a bit of a meeting, I guess, in 1887 and sort of put together their beliefs and really promoted themselves as the actual arts and crafts society, basically. So this society was incorporated for the purpose of promoting artistic work in all branches of handicraft. It will insist upon the necessity of sobriety and restraint of ordered arrangement of due regard for the relation between the form of an object and its use and of harmony and fitness in the decoration put upon it so form function yeah form form function and morality right sobriety i know it's odd that they've connected all of these things to morality is it the only way to sell it in the victorian period I don't know, but like if you're gonna if you're gonna go drastically different direction in architectural style and not get ostracized, do you blame the industrial revolution for that? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, yes, I suppose so. That's and, you're, true. and you're selling and you're marketing yeah. it. But I mean, in theory, the Victorian period today is always considered this period that was like high moral standard, like allegedly like high moral standard, uh, all about. Uh, you know, hiding any of like repressing any of your sexuality sure. and urges and all of those kinds of things. So theoretically, you're thinking the Victorian period is already supposed to have a high moral standard. So now we've rejected something that's happening during that period, and furniture and everything else has to go back and yeah. think about morality. So like I wonder it. if they didn't think about the Victorian period. They didn't call it the Victorian period, but I wonder if they didn't think about that time, like we yeah. think about it. Who knows? You know, like high moral standards and it's yeah. super romanticized for us, thanks to Dickens and others. Yeah, and the media. we sort of forget about 
<laughs> what society might have actually been like, which is like <laughs> alcoholism and Poverty just basically and... look at the life of Johnny McDonald and then you got a good representation <laughs> of Victorian life. But we won't get into that today. No, we won't. So it led me down the hole to all of that led me down the hole to the prairie school. And I were we talking about this before we recorded? Yeah, I think so, right? Oh, is, for a second. Yeah, it was so the I found the prairie school interesting and that's sort of the uh style that um and school that frank lloyd wright is in um because the ideas are so similar but the design is really different so it was also a reaction against the assembly line mass production um but they wanted it to be distinctly north american and wanted to sort of have a separate design style or and not incorporate any European elements as possible. Um, it was organic, and so it should. They wanted it to look as if buildings were growing out from the environment and the landscape around them. So it had to be built of natural materials or at least natural colors. So it's still dark, low um, roofs and porches are almost bigger than the house. That kind of thing. Um, and then the prairie style, the prairie name, the name prairie style comes from the fact that the most of the houses are dominantly horizontal and flat, just like the prairies. <laughs> That's but the same thing. It's like that reaction against the assembly line. And there's this sort of, um, you know, belief that goes along with the architectural style. It's not just about building a building. It's like about building a life. And they believed both movements believed that better homes would create better people. Yeah, no, definitely. So after that, I got lost in roof types and <laughs> the hovering overhang of the Prairie School. I love straight lines, just personally, so and that aesthetic. So I just like looked at pictures for a little while, looked at different roof types. I learned a lot about you roofs. You wasted your hour looking at pictures. <laughs> I, I did. I, I looked, I, well, I was eating lunch at the same time, so, you know, it's okay. Um, so then I wanted to really look at some examples uh, that are local. Because if people are wondering if they're sitting in an arts and crafts movement house right now, while they're listening to this podcast, they might want to know if they are. It's not hard to figure out. But Do we want to come back to the St. Catherine's Connection? Because most of the stuff I found didn't connect to St. Oh, Catherine's. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. We could come back and do the, the St. Catherine's Connection at the end. Is that okay with you? Sounds great. Okay. Yeah. Where did you end up? So I started kind of similar to where you did uh, with where it all came from. Um, William Morris and all of that uh kind of reaction to the industrial revolution so i'm not gonna rehash all of that except to that there was one quote from william morris which is actually a fairly famous quote that i really loved um, and he said have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful mm. and that's kind of this whole in a nutshell this idea that um having beautiful things leads to uh, fulfillment and a better life and so that's kind of where this whole movement comes from because they thought that things of the industrial revolution were ugly essentially mm. um, but that they also believed that art made the world better which I think is amazing it's cool. so great yeah. uh, one thing that I did think was really interesting was those of us well in this room it's just me those of us who grew up and were adults in the 80s and 90s 20 like the 1980s and 90s not 1880s and 90s uh will uh will kind of um have like a a flashback because uh there was a little bit of a reaction after the 1980s kind of consumerism mm. 
that went back and kind of Martha Stewart fit with a lot of this is this idea of making things yourself and this whole yeah. handy handcraft and having beautiful things, spending a little bit more money to have something really beautiful because of its beauty. And I thought that was really an interesting kind of <clears throat> way for me to connect it to my own experience, even though like totally that wasn't an arts and crafts movement thing, yeah. but it, it, <clears throat> I totally understood it because of that reaction that came after that kind of crazy consumerism of the 1980s uh, led to this more recent. And it's still common with even things like, to me, in my mind, craft breweries and um, our kind of craft shops and stuff like that where you, there's just small amounts of things, but they're all unique and they're handmade. And yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a similar thing in my mind. So... Um, I did go a little bit, found a little bit of information in the idea between what the UK movement was like versus the US movement. They were different. Um, their in, uh, attitude to industrialization was different. In the UK, they were really negative about machines and machines making things as part of the creative process. But in the United States, they embraced machines a lot more than in the UK. I mean, like, uh, you could buy so. your plans in a magazine and have your exactly. home shipped to you in pieces. So. Like, I feel like William Morris would have that, feel like that's a problem. He you would need have a to conviction. hire local artisans to make your house, not <laughs> buy it out yeah, of a catalog. Yeah, for sure. I feel like good thing he was, when I don't know when he died, but probably good thing he was dead by the time yeah. uh, Strictly. Strictly was publishing and mass, <laughs> mass producing for American exactly. Foursquares yeah. in Arts and Crafts style, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. This is exactly not what I wanted to happen. No, exactly. You know? um, it's hilarious. The thing that, uh, one thing that we haven't mentioned already, but that probably most people will recognize is William Morris's very famous patterns of wallpaper. Most people would yeah. recognize the wallpaper. It was, it's very iconic look to it uh, with How? nature, imagery of nature and uh, forms of medieval art, which we should probably put a link on our, uh, yeah, on the bottom of the blog uh, so that people can see it. But it's, uh, it's very, once... If you don't know what the arts and crafts movement is, once you've seen a William Morris wallpaper, you will definitely recognize it and how, know that you've seen it before. How would you describe the aesthetic of the art? Like, there's pictures of, like, ivy and, yeah. like, there's lots of grid pattern or diamond pattern, that yeah. kind of thing. And it's the same in stained glass windows, but, like, how would you, how would you describe the... It's rustic, how right? It's, like, it's, it's not... It is rustic, but how it's different from the Victorian period is that... Lots of times the solid colors, um, fairly muted, not really busy and bright, even though it's <clears throat> it's a very, um, it is kind of a busy paper, but it doesn't come across as, as busy because of its more simplistic kind of design to it. Cool. So, so I had got to that. Oh, and then I came across probably one of my favorite things today, which was, well, maybe it wasn't my favorite, but it was one of them, was <laughs> that... This whole movement was sparked from the 1851 Great Exhibition, which is like, I was completely obsessed with the Great Exhibition for like three years and uh, read everything I could find about this world fair happening in London, England in this huge glass building. Uh, Amazing. Crystal Palace. Exactly. Those people that don't know anything about it, Google the Crystal Palace 1851. It's probably one of the coolest things in my mind. Um, so anyway, I didn't realize the arts and crafts movement was kind of like sparked off by the fact that this great exhibition was going to happen and they had room for them to be able to show their works. I thought that was awesome. Um, found out that William Morris, which isn't surprising, William Morris hung out with artists of the pre-Raphaelite, um, 
school and uh, Pre-Raphaelite artists, for our listeners who don't know them, are basically it's paintings and art that kind of evokes this idea of things like King Arthur and uh, the, the the old good old days of chivalry and myths and uh, legends. Myths and, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure more. But there's a particular style them. about it too, right? Like yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's and very like, romantic. The women always yeah. have long, flowing, kind of c- curly hair, and yeah. there's and men in armor. Even if they're not famous myths or legends or whatever, like a fisherman on a boat. You know, like that kind of yeah, yeah, like an idyllic, idyllic uh, yeah, kind of time period. You always feel like there's there, there's birds singing in the background and leaves falling or yeah. flower petals falling from yes. the sky. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what a time to be alive! <laughs> um, something I did, uh, which I thought was. Uh, well, here's here's the sordid part of the uh, the research I got. A little bit of sordidness. Uh, eventually, William Morris, who was kind of in this business that included some of the Pre-Raphaelite painters, including uh, um, Dante Rossetti, um, they were all in this business putting together, like selling furniture and wallpaper and those kinds of things, all part of this movement. There was architects as well, and they were designing buildings. Uh, they basically, William Morris, bought out the entire group of their shares in the company and started his own company, partly because Rossetti was having an affair with Morris's wife. What? <laughs> so wow. There's the sordid I thought we were going to talk about architecture. <laughs> <laughs> it's really the only sordid thing I found in my research uh, wow. since I only had an hour, but I thought that was kind of uh, uh, a little bit interesting. Was there any grisly business? There was no details. That's oh, okay. all it said. Um, But going back to the nitty-gritty of the arts and crafts movement, things that I thought were really interesting was that, for the most part, arts and crafts buildings are residences. There are not as many um, other types of buildings, although in Canada, when I went and looked through the Canadian examples, um, there are libraries and uh, studio space for artists and that kind of thing. So there are more Hmm. here in Canada, but for the most part, even in Canada, for the most part, uh, arts and crafts buildings are generally associated with residences. Is that because you wouldn't want an, an industrialist, capitalist building to be built from a moral... Hmm. Like, if you're an architect, you're like, I can't build a bank building from this because this is for this and, and banks are for this, you know? like Probably. I know that the Art Nouveau style, which was kind of influenced by arts and crafts, a lot of, it, of those big buildings like banks and... Um, kind of those iconic uh, the palazzo style, yeah, yeah. with the flat with the the brass yeah. flowery ivy kind of thing on the doors that came a little bit later, and they were influenced by it. But I don't know if it's just because um, the whole the whole uh, kind of ethos behind the arts and crafts movement was this idea of healthy living, and yeah. it fits better with the residents, perhaps, or perhaps nobody wanted that in their big honking building and yeah. uh, wanted it as part of their house instead <laughs> like they had you no just, clients and this was what it was just needed a big building. <laughs> yeah you just yeah. had that was your client yeah. um and then after uh william morris broke up the business and started his new business one of the most iconic pieces of um art that was created out of that business was the morris chair which is actually mm. still very popular it's the an early type of reclining chair Basically, it looks kind of like a, a lazy boy chair, but with wooden arms on the side that look almost like a, 
they look almost like the headboard of a bed on each side of the chair. Once you, you'll Google it and you see it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So in Canada, um, it was... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Adrian is currently looking this up on his phone so he yeah. can see what a William Morris chair looks like. I'm trying. That is so arts and crafts. Yeah. Like looking at that, like straight lines, dark wood. But it's beautiful and as like, a reclining yeah, chair. Really, really I would yeah. love to have one. Yeah. Uh, so in Canada, the arts and crafts movement essentially uh, was from about the 1890s to the First World War. Um, but there was no equivalent to England where the arts and crafts movement was generally an English country house kind of thing. So in Canada, it wasn't a rural movement at all. It was an, it was an urban movement pretty much, mm-hmm. um, all over. Um, and it was essentially, um, houses, a lot of houses in smaller neighborhoods and stuff like that. Um, and in Canada, lots of the arts and crafts details were restricted to things like stained glass windows and fittings, um, but they advocated social change through design. I wonder why that is, why it was urban and rural. Is it because it... Because we didn't really have the big country house that they had less, in England. It's a little less flexible if, you're, if your um, architecture and your interior design go together. And it might be a little bit more fussy. Like I'm thinking about some of the farm, the Victorian farmhouses are pretty easy to... First of all, they're built as farmhouses, so they don't have some of that stuff that you have to worry about getting dirty or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then they're easy to transition into alternative spaces because they're just, they're just a room, right? Yeah. Like everything's outside of the walls. But they also didn't have time to be spending, making big, huge landscaped yards right. that uh, were so fit less, with the design of your house. If you look fussy. at some of those old houses, Victorian and Edwardian houses in Canada, yeah. in Ontario, the, uh, outside and around the house was relatively utilitarian. There were generally, pl- sometimes there were plantings, but you're spending all your time clearing your land, pl- planting your crops, you know, those kinds of things. You don't have time to, uh, and there weren't as many servants in Canada. So yeah. it's not like you could afford a bunch of servants to take care of your landscaped garden right. around your big, huge house. So urban makes sense. Yeah. So it was the urban. Uh, one thing I, that we talked about earlier, that it wasn't a lot of larger buildings. I should make a correction to that because there were tons of churches in Toronto that oh, were built nice. in the arts and crafts style. And this is thanks for the most part to a guy named Eden Smith, <laughs> which kind of led me on another little tangent. Um, so I got kind of obsessed with Eden Smith and uh, did a little bit of research related to him. And he built a whole stack of houses, 60 houses in the arts and crafts style in a place called Witchwood Park in Toronto. It's actually the very first neighborhood in Canada to be designated under the Municipal Act as a heritage district. Cool. uh, Which is super cool. Um, And it's the best example of the arts and crafts movement in Canada, pretty much. And that included things like stained glass windows and fittings and stuff like that. So let's talk a little bit about Eden Smith because I kind of got obsessed a little bit with him because there was a really great book online that I was looking through um, that talked about his uh, life and, and his kind of design. His He actually had a motto. How many people do you know that actually have a personal motto? It's pretty cool. A personal motto? His personal motto was individuality in simplicity. I think mine would be something like, Donuts and coffee. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but he was, a, of all the arts and crafts. <laughs> That's such a dad joke. I apologize. 
That's awesome. Of all the arts and crafts architects in Canada at the time, in my opinion, he was the one that kind of stayed pure to the arts and crafts movement pretty much throughout his career. Um, and he was an advocate of the arts and crafts style so much to the point that he would actually argue it in like in debates and stuff like that about the merits of the arts and crafts style. Uh, his design aesthetic was free-flowing, open plans, built-in cupboards, verandas, irregular shaped halls, and side entrances. Mm. Um, and he was, mm -hmm. uh, according to one source, he was a master at sighting a house on a piece of land. And so oh. he always designed houses to take advantage of natural light and the site that it was sitting on. Uh, and he and the aesthetic in Canada for the arts and craft movement was to design your building from the inside out. So um, you, the exterior of your house basically just reflected what the interior design was versus like if you go to a Georgian house where the exterior of the house had to have like five bays across window door. or a door in the middle yeah. with a central hall. And your hip roof in the front, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, the the... The aesthetic here is that the exterior just just basically is built on the interior. Right. <laughs> it's like Which the cladding for the interior. Why some people don't like their houses that they're in because it doesn't like right. your entrances. They're all the over the place. Exactly. Like, and the bay yeah. windows might not match up or whatever. Yeah. So in Toronto, some of his buildings were so unusual. There was some buildings that had like the servants' quarters were in the front rather than the back. The oh the uh, entrances were on the side. That kind of thing. What? So some of his buildings were so unusual for the time that sightseeing buses no. would be rerouted past his houses. Oh my goodness. Which is pretty awesome. <laughs> so it would be very, was it very in vogue to have this house or was it more like a weird art, you know, like people that were into breaking the rules kind of thing? It sounds like it was kind of on and off it wasn't in vogue because it didn't sound like he was you know making money hand over fist right. or anything like that and there were some points in his career where he had to take business like build a church or something right. rather than build houses because he didn't have any clients yeah. um he did start as a, a church builder and a builder for the catholic church so he or for the anglican church so he did that was kind of got him got mm -hmm. his stuff started what years was he uh, operating in um well, some of them were, it was just before the First World War, like from the end of the 19th century. I was trying to, to figure out who built St. Anne's Anglican Church because it's a, it's a heritage church in Toronto. Uh, it's the only Byzantine-style Anglican church in Canada, I think. And, and But what everybody focuses on is that the Group of Seven, before they were the Group of Seven, um, painted the inside. It was um, McDonald and uh, Varley and Carmichael who painted the inside but that's the focus of all the information that I found it so far it could be him because but architect. I'm not sure it's it, 1907 he built Witchwood was built in 1907 between 1907 and 1911 hmm. but by then he was in business with his sons who were both architects as well at different time periods so it could be him um it's so, super arts and crafts as well the but he was also I'm just about to get to this is a perfect segue he was friends with Lauren Harris of the oh, Group no of Seven, yeah. and he also designed a home and a studio for Group of Seven artist Lauren Harris, who used that studio for other Group of Seven members, so I'm sure they all moved in the same uh, circles. Um, yeah. In Toronto, he also built two low-cost apartment complexes, which were the very first experiment for Toronto in social housing, which is really cool. Mm. 
Um, and he designed the first libraries in Toronto that were designed to allow for public access to the stacks. So you couldn't publicly go into yeah. the library and access the books before 1916. Really? <laughs> you had to I'm ask so somebody to get you the book. Wow. <laughs> so the interesting thing I thought about Eden Smith, kind of tying him up at the end here, mm -hmm. is... Uh, um, that uh, he really defended the arts and crafts principles. Like he didn't ever stray away from those principles in his entire design career. Others did, like a lot of Canadian architects who were doing arts and crafts when the style changed and people weren't interested in that anymore, did, built other houses. Right. He always wanted to stick to arts and crafts. He was getting later on in his career, so he retired shortly after that. Right. Uh, but he always stuck to the uh, principles of arts and crafts, and he actually debated it in public. He was part of a group called the Architectural 18 Club, uh, which was a group of architects who were really opposed to the idea of um, having to register as an architect. That, oh. Because it was this debate between whether architects are artists or professionals Engineers, engineering. Yeah. And so he was on the artist side. And so he really defended the principles um, that went with the arts and crafts movement. Yeah. Um, he interestingly, I guess this could be considered kind of on the sordid side, but maybe not really. Who knows? More details. I always like to kind of add the little gossipy stuff, which <laughs> maybe shouldn't do. But anyway, right. he had some interestingly mysterious background. He was like that guy that nobody knew where he came. Like he, he, they weren't really sure. His background was a mystery. And it's because apparently he told people he came from a rich family in England who... Uh, had maybe fallen a little bit on hard times, which is why he came to Canada. But uh, later on, someone did his genealogy. It turns out he was basically from a working class family. His father had been a builder, uh, but he basically lied about his background when he came to Canada. I don't know why, maybe to get more clients. Who knows? He was, to me, this is super amazing. He was able to design a building within a week. And so he would sit down with his clients and... Um, a week? And he would draw out in the meeting with his clients, first clients, he would like kind of sketch out on a piece of paper the floor plan of the building by talking to them of how they wanted their, their building to function. Within four days, he'd have detailed design drawings. Did he and, sleep? I don't know. And then yeah. they could actually start building within another week or so. Wow. It's crazy. And then, of course, because this seems odd to people nowadays, he corresponded with all of his clients in longhand. So in cursive writing, <laughs> which everybody did anyway. But, he did. but by 1920, people would have been typing letters to their clients and they wouldn't have been this writing it out. I just rolled my eyes. <laughs> and he basically because, was so like old school. So he starts to crash through and through. For sure he, he was. Of course he would refuse yeah. to use a typewriter yeah. or even pay someone to do it for him. And he probably had beautiful handwriting. Yeah. I, sh I would love to go and actually take a look at his handwriting yeah. he probably had like all the the swirls and is there a flourishes. museum or is there a collection in the archives or something i or? didn't get that far because right. i probably cool went maybe his... a little over my one hour <laughs> you can't go over your one hour not by very much okay, well, cutting but off by a then. little bit um <laughs> and then that's pretty much generally uh where i ended up was with um uh, with our buddy here, um, Eden Smith. I really found him really interesting, and there's some really great pictures of his houses online. Um, but, you know, when you look at the houses of arts and crafts style versus 
the later styles that came after that, like Tudor and, well, I guess Tudor was before that too, but Tudor Revival and um, Gothic Revival and Queen Anne and those, they're so over the top almost that Arts and Craft actually looks really plain and you would even not even recognize them in a neighborhood, I think, a lot of times nowadays because they get so overwhelmed by these kind of over-the-top styles. Especially the basic examples that would probably yeah. be post-war the smaller house houses that were built really quickly and there are six or seven of them in a line you don't even notice them anymore yeah um, you notice them when they're next to a you know a completely different house or a nicely gabled victorian or that one of those massive queen anne's downtown yeah. or something like that so, so but yeah. that's a good segue into some of the examples that i wanted to give yeah. in St. Catherine's. and i think this is I, I think i can take credit for this topic because i think this was yes this was your topic my, one of mine yeah and I think it's important because so many of the urban development, so much of the urban development, I think is, it can be seen in this style uh, around the city. And so for that reason, it makes up a big chunk of the identity of the streetscape around, especially in certain neighborhoods. Not everywhere. Um, we couldn't really think of a, an example of an arts and crafts style home. There might be some, but I don't know. Of any yeah. Ameritan. That's okay. That's okay. Just, oh, right. So. Something about how. Meriton, there were no. Right. So you're you. saying, essentially, there were no arts and crafts buildings that you can think of. Not that I can think of. I'm sure there might be one or two, but I think the development was earlier than that. And the replacement development at the turn of the century for buildings that were built when the canal was in operation, I again, I don't think, like... Is the fact the keg factories and like no. it's not really at all. It's more like it's a Victorian factory building, and then the other ones are are not really either. So I'm trying to think there might be one or two that are in the twenties. Um, but it's possible the some churches of them are, are lost. the churches are older than that, yeah. and they're not built in that style either. So yeah, not really in Meriton. Um, so I looked in Portaluzzi, and you had some examples in Portaluzzi as well. Yeah. Uh, is are there any church buildings in Portaluzzi that are Arts and crafts? Um, they probably are like a mix yeah. of things. But Interior some of them really. have like have similar like have uh, some of the features of arts yeah. and craft for sure. Yeah. There's a there's a few in Yates. The Yates Street District has a few, especially the medieval style, Tudor style arts and crafty type houses. There's one that there's one house on College Street that a friend of mine used to live in. And Holy man, is it a nice house. The The entrance is on the side, which is weird. It's a big house. There's three floors and servants' quarters and back stairs nice. and all that. But the main staircase is like a side staircase. Oh, yeah. It's not It's not one straight line. Yeah. You've got three landings going up, kind of like in Downton Abbey. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, it's nice. And there's fireplaces in every room. Beautiful. So like, they found it difficult to live in because... So much, so much of the um, the workspace was so separated from the living space, so it was still kind of Victorian in 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 structure, I guess. Maybe not wholly arts and crafts, where those spaces were a little bit more linked for people who didn't have servants. Right, so, but, but this house had servants, and that was what you needed. Three floors with servants' for quarters. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Yates Street is another good place to go yeah. hunting for, um, for sure. arts and crafts. Uh, York. 
and uh, the York Hague district next to Lake Street, which is where I live. What's up? <laughs> uh, behind the armory. Right. The armory itself is a little arts and crafts only in that it is a very romanticized medieval, or sorry. Yeah, it has like a castle Medieval structure, right? So uh, big dark stone. I don't really know what most of the rooms are like, even if any of them are still original, but. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that neighborhood Way more working class examples of our arts and crafts. So much smaller family homes, l- lots of four squares, tons of four squares, and then smaller one and a half story homes. Um, so much wood. There's so much wood in my house. So <laughs> super, super. Uh, the house is built in 1910. Very, very arts and crafts, even though it's the probably the cheapest, uh, lowest working class example of, we don't have any stained glass, unfortunately, okay. but lots of my neighbors have stained glass. And then I'd say the most recognizable arts and craft movement in the whole uh, neighborhood uh, in the whole city is the old Glenridge neighborhood. Almost every house is a Tudor revival like um, house. Uh, I know a few people who live there. The interiors are pretty uh, arts and crafts, if not late twenties, you know, like that, that um, with the, like a plain door with the glass doorknob. That's the kind of interiors that they're original interiors that they're looking at. But I think the most famous arts and crafts building in the city is Glenridge Public School. Right. It is super for a big building. So we were talking about earlier how mm-hmm. it's really residential buildings. For a big building, it sticks out. Not like a sore thumb, but it sticks out. Like, what is that? It's got so many church-like features. It has so many residential-like features. It has a hipped roof. How many schools do we know that have hipped roofs, right? They're all yeah. more like flat, flat, or you know, Victorian-looking buildings. Yeah. yeah. So um, I would say Glenridge Public School is probably the most famous arts and crafts building in the city. There's one other. And that's St. Barnabas Church. Right. I was just going to say a St. Barnabas Church must be an arts and crafts <laughs> I'd building. I'd say it's it's maybe a, the tie. Let's have a yeah. tie then. Because <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Probably couldn't decide. Yeah. But yeah, St. Barnabas uh, Church is also uh, arts and crafts. Arts Which and crafts. definitely is when you go in it. it oh, and designed like, as such. Yeah. yeah designed as such. For it sure. looks like a gothic yeah. kind of medieval church with for all sure. the beams and the low, dark. Low, low. Like yeah. the, that hipped roof comes yeah. all, almost like... To the ground. Like what? Like six feet, maybe at yeah. at least, right? Like you, like how do you get in here? It's like <laughs> you have to be short to get Actually, in. Actually, it's hard to know which way to go in to get yes. into the church. Yes, isn't that yeah. interesting? So um, yeah, I'd say those two buildings are the most famous examples of arts and crafts in the city. Awesome. I just love both of those buildings, and they're so you know, like they are kind of captured in people's. Uh, memories and their their vision of the community so yeah 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 well, i think that's what's so cool about st catherine's is that because it's been around for so long we've got so many examples of different architecture that you know you can pinpoint pretty much anything in the city and it just adds so much character to uh, to our community for sure the arts and crafts buildings that are in our community today are doing the same thing that the movement espoused which was making a community better through art <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> I dropped my pen, but that was pretty much the best conclusion I think ever. Yeah, that's where the research went. Woo!
Thanks for tuning in to our new podcast. If you have any ideas for what Kathleen and I should research, we'd love to hear them. In fact, we have had a few suggestions from my friend Trish, who thinks we could get into the history of pens, bras, and toilet paper. <laughs> thanks for your suggestions, and thanks for listening, Trish. Thanks, Trish. You can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Museum, or on Twitter and Instagram at STC Museum. Tune in next time for our rabbit hole exploration of Canadian Thanksgiving. Gobble, 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 gobble. <laughs> Go, 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 go! Oh, Adrian. <laughs> I'm a good gobbler. Go, 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 go. <laughs> I'm sorry. One Hour in the Past is produced by us, Adrian Petrie and Kathleen Powell, and brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre in the city of St. Catharines. Go, 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 go! go.